Welcome to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Tonight, we are going to mostly ignore the usual elephant in the room. Currently, cases are down, and while there is some new research coming out on longer-term effects, none of it's good news. So we're going to get right into the second half stories tonight, since COVID always seems to take up the first half of any show if I actually get into it. So I've decided to take a respite this week. I hope that uh, everyone is okay with that. Um, I can't imagine you're not COVID fatigued the way that I am. I know that a lot of people are lifting mask mandates and um, are basically trying to get people back to normal as much as possible. Uh, And we'll see how that goes. I am still going to be cautious and I am still going to continue to wear a mask for the uh, conceivable future until I actually feel like we are making progress because there is still very much the potential for a new variant to uh, either develop here in the U.S. since we have so many unvaccinated people or somewhere else in the world and to reach the U.S. and thus create another spike. So again, I am going to not be relaxing personally, but things do seem to be going pretty well right now, so I will not uh, say that you must continue to wear a mask and do things that we have been doing, but just for me personally, I'm going to keep it up. Okay, that is all of the COVID for tonight. We are not going to be talking about it. In fact, we're going to be talking about something completely different. We're going to be talking about space and all sorts of fun stuff. So let's start off with that. The first thing I wanted to talk about tonight was an update on the Apollo moon sample that is being opened at NASA. So if you don't remember, NASA and the ESA partnered to open a 50-year-old sample container from the Apollo 17 mission designated 73001. It was sealed on the moon in December 1972 by astronauts Eugene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt. This represents one of only two samples that were vacuum sealed on the moon and the first to be opened. And so there are actually three more unopened samples still in reserve, including the one that was also vacuum sealed on the moon. Now, the researchers hope it will contain gases or volatile substances such as water or carbon dioxide. And so the goal is to extract this minute amount of gas and then use spectrometry to analyze them in detail. So they don't expect to get very much, but the advances in spectrometry uh, excuse me, have been uh, so, have just been so much since the last 50 years that they're going to be able to learn a lot. 
And so they are very excited and an entire apparatus has been created in order to make sure that they are able to get every single molecule that is available in the sample. So it's pretty exciting. And so, again, the goal is to get all of that awesome moon uh, gas into their custom-made apparatus. That is the word I am searching for. Sorry about that. And so, yeah. One of the important characteristics of 73001 is that it was taken at a depth that was always below freezing for water. So the thought was that it might preserve more volatiles than the upper part, which was subjected to more of the effects of diurnal heating and cooling, noted Alex Menchik, a, pr- a research professor of physics and faculty fellow of the Washington University in St. Louis McDonald Center for the Space Sciences. And so the outer shell was removed back in February and revealed to have no gas, which actually suggests that the original capsule is intact. So that was actually a good thing that there wasn't any gas in the outer shell. Now, this sample is of particular importance because it comes from an area that seems to have experienced a landslide. Now, we don't have a rain on the moon, said Julianne Gross, deputy Apollo curator, and so we don't quite understand how landslides happen on the moon. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> um, how do you have a landslide if you don't have any water? Um, the only thing I can think of is uh, wind, but there's not a ton of wind on the moon because there's not a ton of atmosphere. So it may have been uh, the result of an impact somewhere nearby could have uh, destabilized a rock face or a um, debris pile and therefore cause the landslide, but we just don't know. So it's really cool to be able to uh, look at these gases and there is some actual rock in there as well. And they're going to allow the rock to also degas. And so they're going to be able to look at all of these and check them out. And so I will continue to watch for the updates on this. Uh, They were supposed to have some preliminary research this week. I haven't seen the reports on it yet, though. But if I do, I will bring that to you next week. And so for those other samples, because there are still several others, senior curator Ryan Ziegler notes that they will probably be opened sooner rather than later. Or once we manage to get the Artemis project off the ground and returning samples from the moon. So Artemis is currently slated to send astronomers back to the moon in 2025. I doubt we'll wait another 50 years, he said, particularly once they get Artemis samples back. It might be nice to do a direct comparison in real time between whatever's coming back from Artemis with one of these remaining unopened cores, sealed cores. And so, yeah. That would be pretty exciting to be able to see if 
for any reason there are differences in the last 50 years. Almost certainly not, because the moon is pretty inert, to be honest. Um, but, you know, obviously there's still a lot we don't know about the moon. And so it's always great to have that kind of a comparison available. So yeah, I'm sure we will hear more about that story in the coming days. Our next story comes from a point halfway, roughly, between the Earth and the Sun, where the Solar Orbiter spacecraft currently is located. The craft is a joint mission of the European Space Agency and NASA, and according to an ESA press release, it is now 46.6 million miles from the Sun. And so it has been observing the Sun since October since November of 2021. The orbiter will continue to get closer and closer to the sun while taking measurements of the solar winds and the unpredictable corona. The probe's position is ideal for researchers to study space weather originating from the solar wind, which bathes the solar system in a steady stream of charged particles. And so on Earth, those charged particles are responsible for the aurora and occasionally the mass disruption of electronics. So uh, we've been lucky so far not to have a catastrophic uh, event in modern times, but we do have one in fairly recent history. So the most famous of these was the Carrington event in September of 1859. And so even though there wasn't a ton of technology as there is today. There were, well, telegraph lines and they were kind of universally, uh, destroyed in some respects. I think some of them survived, but they had just giant spikes of energy running through them. No one could send a telegraph because they were all being, um, electrified in such a um, extreme way. And in fact, there were actually reports that some of the telegraph offices caught fire from the amount of electrical discharge that was happening. And so, yeah. And another thing that happened was that basically you could see Aurora from most of the globe. Um, didn't quite make it to the equator, I think, but basically most of the, um, most of the earth was able to see Aurora. Uh, it is named after English astronomer Richard C. Carrington, who was observing sunspots at the time when he, when the event originated on the sun's surface. And so, um, he actually saw this flash of light and then um, you know, later in the day it had hit and it really just made a mess of everything, uh, that was even vaguely electronic. And so if you imagine that, imagine what would happen today. And so we actually have a series of geostationary operational environmental satellites or GOES that monitor both the earth and the sun. And so the GOES-16 satellite is centered on the Americas and has sensors for both Earth and 
solar flare observations. And that is a joint mission with NASA and NOAA. But getting back to the solar orbiter, it is currently taking a circuitous route to the sun in order to save energy by using the gravitational forces of the Earth and Venus to slingshot closer to the sun. The orbiter will combine its observations with other solar viewing spacecraft like NASA's IRIS or Interface Region Imaging Spectrograph currently in Earth orbit and equipped with instrumentation to better understand how heat and energy move through the lower levels of the solar atmosphere, and the ESA's SOHO, or Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, which has been studying the sun since 1996 and which is around a million miles from Earth. Having these different satellites in different areas of the solar wind will help better track and decipher the secrets of the solar weather. Daniel Mueller, a solar orbiter project scientist with the ESA, said, From this point onward, we are entering the unknown, as far as solar orbiters' observations of the sun are concerned. The orbiter will reach the closest orbit of the sun on March 26th. Between March 14th and April 6th, it will be within the orbit of Mercury. The orbiter will collect data on the sun's surface and the composition of solar flares and solar campfires, a feature only discovered in 2020 from images taken by the solar orbiter. The campfires are super bright spots on the sun, roughly the size of a European country and captured by the extreme ultraviolet imager, which scans the corona and makes beautiful pictures, actually. Um, You should definitely look those up if you want to see really beautiful pictures of the sun. Amazingly, despite decades of observation and the fact that they seem to be very widespread, these campfires had not been previously observed. The campfires are little relatives of the solar flares that we can observe from Earth, millions or billions billion times smaller, explains David Bergman's principal investigator of the EUI instrument in an ESA press release. The sun might look quiet at first glance, but when we look in detail, we can see those miniature flares everywhere we look. These campfires could help us better understand the phenomena of coronal heating, which we've discussed which we've discussed before. This is the fact that the surface of the sun is much hotter than the interior, which is well quite counterintuitive. <laughs> if you think about it, the center should really be hotter than the uh, surface. And so David Mueller, again, suggests at, suggested at the time that they may be related to the sun's magnetic field as the areas where they were detected were under pressure and eventually tear, releasing energy that shows up as a campfire. What I'm most looking forward to is finding out whether all these dynamical features we see in the extreme ultraviolet imager can make their way into the solar wind or not. There are so many of them, said Luis Hara, a physicist at the Physical Meteorological Observatory in Davos, Switzerland, and co-principal investigator for the extreme ultraviolet imager, as the probe approaches its closest orbit to the sun. And so this mission differs from the Parker Solar Probe, 
which is getting even closer to the sun by featuring cameras that are actually capturing images rather than just data. Though the data from the Parker Solar Probe has been pretty spectacular, as I noted before, those pictures are truly worth a thousand words. And so, yeah, it is very exciting, and I am looking forward to talking more about that in the future as well. Back on Earth, a team of Indian and English astronomers have explained the origin of spicules on the sun. Spicules are jets of plasma that occur throughout the sun's chromosphere, the layer just above the visible surface. The spicules appear as thin grass-like plasma structures that are constantly thrusting out from the surface and then pulled back by gravity. The amount of energy and momentum these structures can carry is of interest in solar plasma astrophysics. Once again, the process by which plasma is supplied to the solar wind and the way the solar atmosphere is heated to a million degrees Celsius is an ongoing mystery. The researchers found that they could model the spiracles using paint excited by a speaker. Yes, this is very cool, let me tell you. I looked at some of it and I've also seen uh, this before and it's very cool. And so, once again, a team of astronomers from the Indian Institute of Astrophysicists, Physics, and researchers from the UK devised the lab-based analog, the phenomena in which the base within a song causes the speaker and the fluid resting on it to vibrate and excite, is called Faraday excitation. It is often used for artistic purposes, but can also be used in scientific experiments. The researchers found that by using fluid-like paint or shampoo, they could simulate the unbroken jets because the long polymer chains within the substance give it directionality. Sahel Day from the Indian Institute of Astrophysics, or the IIA, and the first author of the study explained, the solar plasma can be imagined as threaded by magnetic field lines, much like the long chains in polymer solutions. This makes both the systems anisotropic, with properties varying with the direction in space. They also found similarities within the mathematics of the treatment of stresses involved. But obviously only to an extent. The stresses are orders of magnitude different, and there's also some differences in really just the actual physics of what's going on. So it's definitely not a one-to-one comparison by any means. Spurred by the visual similarity between the solar spicules and the jets of paint on the speaker, we investigated the role of magnetic field on the sun using state-of-the-art numerical simulations of the solar plasma. In parallel, we explored the role of polymer chains by using slow-motion videography on Faraday waves in polymeric solutions, said Murthy OVSN, co-author from the Azim Premji University, where the laboratory experiments were conducted. They found that for the plasma spiracles, 
the magnetic field acted in the same way as the polymer chains in the paint, keeping the jets intact against instability. The researchers noted that the plasma right below the visible solar surface, or photosphere, is in a state of constant convection, powered by the nuclear energy released in the hot, dense core. The convection, like boiling, the convection, like boiling water in a pot, uh, sends up periodic and strong kicks to the plasma in the chromosphere, the shallow, semi-transparent layer directly above the photosphere. Now, the chromosphere is actually 500 times lighter than the plasma in the photosphere. Therefore, those sort of kicks of energy from below register as plasma spikes that travel at ultrasonic speeds as thin columns or spicules. These spicules actually come in a variety of sizes and speeds. It turns out prior consensus suggested that the physics between short spicules was different from tall and fast spikes, but the new research challenges this assumption. The simulations were able to reproduce a forest of jets because they explored a more realistic range of parameters than earlier studies, said Piali Chatterjee, the corresponding author and lead investigator for from IIA. And so, yeah, that is pretty darn cool that you can actually be able to simulate something that is happening on the surface of the sun by using paint on a speaker. Um, it's pretty fantastic. Um, that is some really good cutting edge science and some really good thinking and problem solving right there. Um, very cool. And I think that, um, you know, that is the kind of story that I like talking about because it's just neat to be able to think that you can, uh, I mean, you could DIY that, uh, if you have a pair of old speakers, you could put some paint on it and you could make spiracles from, uh, that are parallel to those that are produced on the surface of the sun. So yeah, that is pretty exciting. And, uh, it is another cool thing to be able to figure out because again, there's so much we don't understand about the solar system. <laughs> like we live in it, obviously. And, you know, we have been doing some pretty good science for the last couple hundred years, but, you know, we still have so much that we don't know. Um, there might be some things we can never quite know. Um, and it's just crazy you know, the idea of being able to open up samples from 50 years ago from the moon is just amazing to be able to do things like be able to model parts of the sun by using, I'm sorry, I just can't get over this, by using paint on a speaker is incredible. And so, yeah, I think that one of the things I like to do here is to keep us in the realm of kind of the light, happier side of uh, science whenever I can, because so many things are terrible in the world all of the time. Um, so yeah, I do want to acknowledge that. I don't want to pretend like science is the answer to a brave new 
a wonderful world full of no strife and war and things like that. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that it has panned out to be that way, though I think some people might have thought it would. Um, but I do think that science has a lot of great things to offer. And I think that if people paid more attention to science and less attention to things like politics, we might actually live in a better world. But, um, you know, and I, I will fully admit that there are people who are come from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of parts of the political spectrum that don't respect science. Um, it's unfortunate. And, uh, I am just as disappointed by the non GMO, uh, leftists as I am by the, uh, and anti-vaxxer leftists as I am by the anti-vaxxer rightists. And so, yeah, um, again, I try not to talk about this all that much. Um, I mean, yes, I will go on the occasional anti-capitalist rant. Um, (laughs) I apologize if there was too much of that last week. Um, (laughs) it just seemed so fitting. Uh, I actually, this afternoon was trying to explain NFTs to a, um, a couple of people and I just ended up after I, you know, had spoken for probably 10 minutes said, I know entirely too much about this and I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, so yeah, because everything about that is terrible in my opinion too. So, um, I try and talk about really cool things. So let's do that. Uh, but first let's take a, uh, break (laughs) for some commercials and to do some PSAs, which are very important. And, uh, yeah. So you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, 
post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and I am excited to move on and talk about more fun things. So, uh... Just in case you forgot, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on uh, WXOJLP 103.3 FM, Valley Free Radio. Anywho, (laughs) let us now switch to another story. And so this time we're going to be talking to or about, I should say, physicists who are exploring the world of sound more specifically. Researchers at Martin Luther University Halle-Wittenberg in Germany, obviously, have made a discovery that could lead to some components in computers and smartphones obsolete. Digital technologies and devices currently make up around 10% of global electricity consumption And with the rise of cryptocurrency and the, in my opinion, NFT scam economy, it's only getting worse. Trust me, I could go on a hour-long rant about uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs, but I will spare you that because it is not, uh, this is not a tech uh, bro podcast slash radio show. Uh, This is a... Uh, science-based ones. So I'm not going to indulge myself in that particular rabbit hole, but just know that NFTs, in my opinion, are a scam, in my opinion. Uh, They could have been something interesting and good, but they were immediately ruined by capitalism. All right, I'm again going to stop that. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it's we're, we're using a lot of energy for electricity, I mean, for electronics. It is therefore necessary to develop more efficient components for information processing, says Professor Greg Waltersdorf, a physicist from MLU University, Martin Luther University, which I 
already said. Anyways, <laughs> currently such devices use non-linear electronic circuits to generate high-frequency gigahertz signals in order to operate. The team at MLU found a way to use a magnetic material that doesn't require the electronic components generally used for this purpose. They found that the magnet magnetization can be excited by a low-frequency megahertz source, which is then transformed by the effect into several frequency components, each of which is a multiple of the excitation frequency. The frequencies cover a range of six octaves and up to several gigahertz. This is like hitting the lowest note on a piano, while also hearing the corresponding harmonic tones of the higher octaves, explains Woltersdorf. The frequency multiplication is explained by the dynamics of the magnetization on a microscopic scale. Different areas do not switch at the same time. Instead, they are triggered by adjacent areas, just like in a falling row of dominoes, explains first author Chris Corner from the Institute of Physics at MLU. And so the discovery could lead to more energy-efficient devices in future. But even more importantly, it may lead to better capacity in future for a range of devices. Currently, microelectronics use electron charges as information carriers. Think ones and zeros. The problem with this is that the electric charge transport also involves the release of heat, which means wasted energy. It's why your cell phone can overheat or why your computer needs that darn noisy fan. Spin electronics could lead to a better solution. By using the charge and the magnetic moment or spin, this could potentially lead to greater energy efficiency and it could free up precious space in devices for other needs. Hey, maybe we could get back the headphone jack in iPhones. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, doubtful. Um, <laughs> very, very doubtful. Um, because obviously they want you to buy uh, their uh, wireless headphone products. But um, yeah, I know many an audiophile out there is still sad uh, that they can't plug in their high def uh, headphones into their iPhone very sad. Um, <laughs> though I suppose technology in earbuds is also getting better. So hopefully that will help. Um, I ended up downgrading to less supposedly good uh, um, earbuds myself because they just worked better. They're a little clunkier, but they just work better. Um, I had some high-end ones and the speaker kept going out on me um, because I actually use them to have conversations, not just listen to music. And apparently uh, the ones that I had seemed to be advertised to be able to do both, but weren't able to. Um, and so, yeah, and that was more than one pair. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to name names because it might have just been a fluke, but... Uh, um, yeah, my partner is still very much of the opinion that wired is better. And sometimes I think she might be right because yeah, though the ones I have now seem to be working pretty well. And again, they're pretty, you know, 
budget. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty much the budget brand. Um, but anywho, this is a weird digression and I apologize. <laughs> okay. So again, that is pretty awesome to be able to potentially get electronics that use less energy and have less heat discharge as energy, because that's just literally wasted energy, just absolutely literally, um, you know, unless you want to try and like fry an egg on the back of your iPhone, which mine has gotten hot enough over the years occasionally that you probably could have done that, but I don't think anyone would recommend that. (laughs) All right. So sound can also be used for other things. And so it may be a solution to using tiny nanomachines in order to deliver and release therapeutics within the human body. Johannes Voss and Professor Raphael Witkowski from the Institute of Theoretical Physics and the Center for Soft Nanoscience at the University of Munster, again in Germany. Apparently there are lots of physicists in Germany. Not surprising. Not surprising at all. Um, And they have discovered the answer to a question that has plagued the adoption of acoustic propulsion. The technology uses ultrasound to propel nanomachines. There are many publications describing experiments. However, the particles in these experiments were almost always exposed to a standing ultrasound wave. This does admittedly make the experiment considerably simpler, but at the same time, it makes the results less meaningful as regards possible applications, because in that case, traveling ultrasound waves would be used, notes Voss. Now, of course, we've talked about ultrasound before, and uh, for the most part, ultrasound can be used without any kind of uh, issues, though, um, you know, there might be some very uh, local effects when using it in therapeutics. So for instance, I think it's still one of the best uh, explanations for the phenomenon of ghosts that people see and uh, experience. I think that it is very much likely that a lot of times there is some sort of ultrasound that is happening and the brain can hear it on some level, but can't quite figure out what it is. So it makes up uh, ideas about what it could be. And oftentimes those ideas end up being ghosts because we are culturally uh, primed to think that things that we don't understand are scary and bad. Um, I should say we're evolutionarily primed for that, actually, because, you know, again, this is a very uh, sort of primal thing that was once extremely important that if you heard something that didn't make sense, you know, it could be a predator. It could be something that was trying to stalk, stalk you, sneak up on you. So, you know, unfortunately, in this day and age, it's not as useful. Um, and it ends up often becoming some sort of, uh, you know, misinformation within your brain. Um, yeah. Someone asked me the other day, uh, just again, and aside, someone asked me the other day if I believed in ghosts. Then I said, um, you know, I believe that people have real experiences 
that they really do believe uh, have happened to them and that they are having actual experiences, but that there is not a supernatural explanation, that there is ultimately a natural naturalistic explanation. And it might be something that we haven't figured out yet, but it might be something like ultrasound or just good old fashioned, your brain is lying to you, because that's another thing that we talk about a lot here is that your brain is often lying to you. Um, it's pretty much lying to you all of the time. Most of the time, those lies are good things like the fact that you're seeing a uh, continuous picture when you look out at the world, which is not how your brain actually trans, tra- um, it's not how your eyes actually take in the information. Your brain fills in gaps. Um, so that's, that's a good lie that makes the world less jarring to us. Um, you know, things like that. Uh, the fact that when you are seeing things, you're actually seeing them upside down and your brain flips them over. Another good thing. Um, I always wanted to try. I have to at some point. There are some glasses that you can wear that will flip it back the other way. And I've always wanted to try that. I'll have to do it at some point. Anywho, again, we are digressing. So, as he noted, they've done, you know, experiments, but they were mostly kind of the easiest uh, possible experiments that weren't particularly helpful for the uh, messy dynamics of actually using uh, nanomachines within, say, a human body. And another issue was that previous investigations sidestepped the issue of orientation of the nanoparticles. So that's another big thing. Does do nanoparticles have to be in a particular orientation? They just sidestepped that issue by simply using tests where all of the nanoparticles were perpendicular to the ultrasound wave. Um, you know, I get it. You want your uh, science to be neat and uh, easy when you're doing preliminary work, but yeah, definitely need to uh, go further. And so the team found that propulsion of the nanoparticles does depend on their orientation. However, they also found that traveling ultrasound wave functions extremely well for all orientations of the particles, which means that the technology can be used potentially in biomedical applications. Witkowski notes, we have revealed important properties of acoustically propelled nanoparticles which had not previously been studied, but which need to be understood to enable the step to be made from basic research to the planned applications involving the particles. And so the researchers actually used simulations of conical particles, which can move fast even at low intensities of ultrasound and are easily produced in large numbers. They were just around a micrometer in size compared to a red blood cell with a diameter of around 7.7 micrometers or micrometers. I never remember how to pronounce that. They would easily be able to move in the bloodstream. The particle size can be selected in line with what is needed in the particular application intended, and the propulsion mechanisms also function in the case of smaller and larger particles, Voss explains. We simulated the particles in water, but the propulsion is also suitable for other fluids and for tissue. 
And so, of course, the next step is actual experimental research to test the efficacy of the simulations. But this could be a really cool new way in order to deliver drugs, to deliver drugs especially um, to specific areas of the body. So in uh, cancer, chemotherapy, a big thing that people are trying to do is to use targeted therapies, um, you know, being able to get rid of the old-fashioned chemo where you just uh, inject people with the chemo drugs and hope that the other tissues of the body are not harmed as much as the cancer is harmed. Uh, if we could get targeted nanomaterials into just the cancerous cells, that would be a lot better. And we've definitely already made some inroads into this um, targeted therapy, but there's definitely ways to go. And so, um, yeah, very exciting. Okay. So we are now going to move from the sun and moon to the, to the earth. And now we're going to move to the other side of, uh, the solar system. And we are going to check in with Percy and Ginny or the Perseverance Rover and Ingenuity Helicopter. Yes, they have nicknames. And yes, I enjoy being able to anthropomorphize them. Um, I am team anthropomorphize. <laughs> um, it's just something that I find very uh, natural. So yeah. Uh, Ginny has now flown 20 missions on the Red Planet, which is amazing. The initial mission consisted of just five flights. But as with lots of NASA, NASA missions, Ingenuity has far outlasted its initial program. JPL tweeted on February 26, Flight 20 was a success. It, in its 130.3 seconds of flight, the hashtag Mars helicopter covered 391 meters or 1,283 feet at a speed of 4.4 meters per second or 9.8 miles per hour, bringing it closer to NASA Persevere's landing location. And so the landing site is named after the feminist science fiction writer, Octavia E. Butler. Uh, and so from there, Percy and Ginny plan to head toward that ancient river delta. The delta in Yezero Crater is the reason we chose the landing site. and We hope it gets to it later this spring, explained Perseverance science team member Bryony e. Horgan an associate professor of planetary science at Purdue University in a video released by the school in February. Once we're there, we'll be able to look at the bottom of the ancient lake that once filled Yezero to search for signs of ancient microbial life, and we plan to spend the whole next year traveling through the ancient lake deposits and ancient river deposits that are within the delta, she added. And so Ginny is working hard to scout areas that the rover will traverse in order to help the team on Earth plot the safest and most efficient route to their destination. Meanwhile, Percy has picked up a hitchhiker. Recent images have captured a stone lodged in one of the six aluminum wheels on the vehicle. It was spotted last month by the onboard front left Hazard Avoidance Camera, or HASCAM. 
The rock most likely slid into the wheel at some point early in February as the rover was on its first auto-nav drive, which included, quote-unquote, a significant amount of cross-slope driving. But have no fear. NASA is unconcerned. The rock is inside of the wheel in an area where it can't really do any harm. It's not perceived as a risk. We've seen these kinds of rocks get caught in Curiosity's wheels from time to time, too, explained a JPL spokesperson in an email to Gizmodo. They occur during cross-slope drives and tend to fall out entirely on their own after a while. There's no particular way to get this rock out of our quote-unquote shoe. These kinds of rocks don't impact driving other than making it a bit noisier. So that's exciting. Um, little hitchhiker that's not doing any harm. Um, it's a good thing that it's not doing any harm. Um, and so, yeah, um, apparently Percy just gets to have a pet rock. Okay, so staying in space and coming back to Earth again, we've been sort of zooming around, uh, back to Earth orbit at least, let's talk about yogurt. Yes, yogurt. <laughs> Some Australian high schoolers from Victoria worked with researchers at the Swinburne University of Technology on the problem of nutrition for astronauts. They decided to send some yogurt to the International Space Station and see what happened. The yogurt returned to Earth last month, and the students are are willing are waiting to uh, receive it and to examine it. And so the students wanted to explore ways in which astronauts might be able to maintain a healthy gut microbiome. And so during the experiments with the Kelly twins, it was discovered that Scott's microbiome was greatly altered during his time in space, but it did bounce back when he returned to Earth. NASA is currently working on the problem via both capsule probiotics and simulated gravity experiments. They suspect a a combination of reduced exposure to environmental microbes, the lack of gravity, and the increased exposure to radiation adversely affected the astronaut's microbiome. After being able to take frozen probiotic strains, or being able to take frozen probiotic strains and milk products and create yogurt in space, could be a viable way to maintain the microbiome. So, yeah being able to basically make yogurt in space is pretty exciting an idea if they can make it work. Um, but one of the things that uh, they seem to be worried about is not only the reduced exposure, but that some of these micros might actually kind of need that gravitational pull to know what they're doing and what's going on with them. Um, so yeah, um, hopefully this is going to work and they are going to be able to actually have created yogurt. And so one of the reasons for this is that, for instance, on long space flights, typical probiotic capsules would lose their potency. And if you think about it, yogurt would be both a good source of probiotics and also of healthy calories. And so for the project, students from the Haleybury School had access to 24 5-milliliter vials in which to design their experiment. Students from the Swinburne Youth Space Innovation Challenge had four teams that were allotted nine vials overall. 
The entire experiment, with 33 vials, was around the size of a small iPhone. All of the vials were dedicated to exploring probiotics, bacteria, and yogurt in space. Once prepared, it was put into deep freeze by researchers at Rhodium Scientific at the Kennedy Space Center. They reached the ISS on December 24th and were removed from deep freeze by astronaut Mark Vandehei and allowed to sit at room temperature in a chamber in the Japanese experiment module named Kibo. After designated, after designated 48 and 72 hour periods, the vials were then refrozen to preserve the progress, which was supposed to obviously be the production of yogurt. The students looked at six strains of bacteria with different mixtures of the strains, as well as samples with the strains isolated. They also had control samples on Earth to compare to those sent into space. The students the students and researchers at Swin Swinburne will use DNA sequencing to explore possible changes to the DNA of the bacteria. Again, uh, another concern is that radiation uh, exposure and see how well the bacteria did or did not multiply. The students also explored dairy and non-dairy versions of yogurt and are hoping to be able to taste the final product. That should be fun. All right. So lastly tonight, we are going to be talking about uh, microbes once more, but this is a pretty exciting story. Um, obviously, this is just uh, basic research for steps, but it could be really uh, great. And so a new imaging technique for uh, looking for being able to image hydrogen is allowing researchers to better understand tryptophan and how it may be used in the development of antibiotic and antifungal drugs. Now, of course, you may have heard of tryptophan as a substance in Turkey that is supposed to make you sleepy. Um, usually people say that the amount you would need to actually make you sleepy is uh, much greater than what you would get in just uh, a Thanksgiving dinner, but uh, tryptophan is a very real and very important component of a lot of things. It's actually a building block for all proteins, and it's essential not only for humans, but for many other organisms, including those occasionally pesky bacteria and fungi. Being able to halt bad bacteria and fungi's ability to create tryptophan could be a game changer. The cells in our body don't make tryptophan. We have to consume it, but bacteria make their own, and if that process gets shut down, they will die said Jacob Holmes, first author and graduate student in chemistry. So if we could ingest something that shuts down the enzymes in their bodies making tryptophan, it would not affect our cells, but would potentially kill the invasive bacterial cells. Very exciting. For more than 20 years, researchers have known about a chemical that can stop tryptophan-producing enzymes in cell. Benzimidazole. But there was a big problem. Researchers couldn't tell how it worked because they couldn't see the position of hydrogen atoms, which is an issue as hydrogen atoms make up half of the atoms in a protein. Without being able to visualize their position, you can't actually get a full picture of the chemical interactions and the architecture of how the molecules fit together. Leonard Mueller, principal, lead principal investigator and chair of UCR's chemistry department, 
and his colleagues have developed new techniques to make this visualization possible. Imagine you're browsing a new dating app to match therapeutics with protein targets, and you can only see pixelated avatars of the molecules and their targets. You don't have enough information to swipe right or left, Mueller said. If you're trying to design drugs, understanding how other atoms are arranged is useful, but you really need to also see the hydrogen atoms to know if there is a match, he added. The first step involved X-ray crystallography to find all of the non-hydrogen atoms. They then used the atom's nuclear magnetism to map out the the molecule's chemical structure, including where the hydrogen atoms would be. They then used a computer model to superimpose the images and allow them to see a level of resolution impossible with only one technique. For so long, we've been guessing what the active sites in this reaction have looked like. This is one of the first techniques that can bring the chemistry to life, said Muller. We think it will be powerful for designing therapeutics as well as industrial chemical transformations. So that is very exciting because uh, if you are a uh, longtime listener, you know that one of my very big uh, issues is antibiotic resistance. And so any kind of um, breakthrough in that realm are very exciting. And I am very happy to hear about a new possible uh, way in which to be able to combat this really, really, really bad um, thing that we don't talk about enough. Um, So yeah. Okay, so I'm going to leave you with that happy news, and I will be back next week. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.